All right. Greetings, everybody. Welcome to Live Courageously, podcast show number 17 of 2022. I chose the title of uh, Live Courageously because that has been the conscious theme of my life for the past two years since the beginning of the pandemic in 2020 and in reaction to the uh, pandemic. Um, and it's also been an unconscious theme for most of my life. Um, if you haven't seen the previous now 16 podcasts with some of my amazing friends sharing their powerful stories of overcoming all odds and living courageously, uh, you can watch them on uh, John Duffy, uh, my YouTube channel. And I recommend you check them out. And if you got a lot of time on your hands, uh, binge watch them. Uh, it's better than Netflix and you'll get to get a free dose of inspiration and courage and you'll meet some amazing people. So interestingly, uh, I like to say ever since I started this podcast show, I keep meeting and becoming friends with even more courageous people to have on the show in the future. So stay tuned to meet some of the great people that are in my life every week. And what this show is about, uh, if you haven't watched it before, or if you have, it's about faith over fear. Um, I personally believe that fear is a, just a reaction. Uh, it's a warning, um, but courage is a choice. And I suggest that you need to consciously choose courage to get through life and to deal with what life may throw at you in the future. So today, I encourage you to adopt the spirit of, of courage in the face of any and all fears. And so let me introduce you today to my guest and friend, Annie Nelson, who has that spirit of courage in the face of fear. Annie is a Minnesota native. Then she moved on to Chicago and then on to California. Uh, Annie received a theater arts scholarship from uh, CSULB, and she also studied at the American Film Institute. And being from a family sports background, she found the niche in sports broadcasting and special events. Uh, in 2004, a special pen pal friendship with a wounded Marine led to an epiphany changing her life forever. And for the past 18 years, and maybe a little bit more, Annie has dedicated her life to raising awareness for U.S. veterans of all eras. Um, Annie also uh, successfully combated PTS herself in 1995 after being beaten by passengers while in flight working as a flight attendant and surviving six separate concussions and two brain tumors in 2010 and 2018, one being a massive life-threatening brain tumor um, in August of 2010, 10 and a half hour surgery leaving her deaf in her right ear and a two hour or a two year a recovery journey, learning again to walk, talk, and cope with her new reality. Annie relates to and inspires our heroes and others by her own real life battles. Annie has walked and her inspirational talks ignite a flame of hope with all she comes in contact with. Annie's passion and compassion has drawn movie and TV stars, political figures, sports celebrities to join her crusade. Thanks to Annie, they offer their time and their energy uh, here at home for our heroes. Annie was the founder of the American Soldiers Network, a 501c charity uh, originally based in Southern California with marketing and efforts extending across the US. Annie's also the creator of a TV series pilot entitled American Heroes. She's also a columnist for US Veterans Magazine column American Heroes in every issue. Since 2018, through her American Soldiers Network, Annie created and launched RuckUp.org to be an indispensable resource for veterans, military, and their families. Her I Choose to Live Oath has been a first step in saving the lives of our heroes. Her book, Resilience, Coming Back from Crisis with Faith, Passion, and Purpose, 
released in 2019 on Amazon, and you can still find it on Amazon, and please do, and, and uh, read it. Um, it was a hot new release in 2019, was picked up by Walmart online, and is inspiring thousands of readers nationwide. The foreword was written by renowned actor Kevin Sorbo, who I've been uh, uh, able to work with on two movies, um, and he's also a Minnesota-born native. So at this point, I would like to welcome uh, my friend and uh, our guest, Annie Nelson, to the show. Greetings, Annie. How are you doing? I'm well. How are you? Good to be here. Hey, thank you for taking the time and being part of this. Um, I, you know, I wanted to share your amazing story or stories, because ain't one story. You have multiple, multiple stories and uh, what you've been through and how you inspire others, because that's kind of what the show's about. And I always kind of usually try and start off with first two questions is um, the first one is, do you remember the first time we met? Um, and then, of course, we met many times after that. But what was the first time we met? And I'm trying to see if I remember it right or do you remember it right? I thought we met at a mutual group of um, colleagues event. You may be right. And I also think and uh, I thought and I could be uh, wrong because I, I my memory is not sometimes the strongest on this, but I know uh, uh, one of the times we met and I thought it was the first, but it might have been the second or third was when you um, appeared in the movie Dave Allspock's movie, The Flag, and I got a chance to interview you at uh, the National Cemetery in Los Angeles, where you, you spoke uh, eloquently about what the flag meant to you and how important it was. So that may not have been the first time, but it was definitely one time. It was time close to the beginning. What's that? That was close to the beginning of when I met you. Right. Okay. I'm not sure if that was the first one or if we had met with Dave at um, one of our colleague events out there in Los Angeles. You you like may be right. At the same time. You may be right. It was kind of maybe around a similar time. But then you went on, and and, uh, and we'll talk about that a little bit after with the flag and and you know your your involvement with that. That was very a, a very cool project that you uh, contributed to. Um, and then you know the other question I'd like to and then we went on and met you know obviously cross paths on a multiple event after event throughout the years. Um, my next question that I always like to ask people and you exemplify this is, what does living courageously mean to you personally um, in your lifetime? It, well, it's it's funny because when people have said that, you know, and referred it to me, but in my walk, I, I live faithfully. And so if living faithfully has become courageously, then they you can interchange those words as, as it relates to me personally. When I see other individuals going through um, sticking to their convictions or going through battles and not not counting their battles but turning their battles into blessings and their you know their trials into triumphs i think all of those show evidence of a courageous person and choosing to live out their life in a courageous momentum so it, it's not really a definition i could pinpoint and say i live courageously by xyz um i think life throws you a lot of curveballs and you have to just keep keep whacking at them and see when the, some you're going to hit and some are going to be a miss. And, you know, sometimes you're going to get that home run or at least get to first base and other times you're going to strike out. And a lot of times you're going to get hit by a pitch and then <laughs> you just kind of keep going with the flow. So living courageously for everybody, I think, takes on a different meaning depending on what life has thrown at you and how you choose to, to handle it. But I definitely think anybody that has done anything courageous or chooses to make a courageous attempt to stick to their convictions, to um, 
find faith over fear and to be a survivor and, and not a victim. I think all of that encompasses a courageous life. Uh, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I, and there's so many different ways to define it. And like you said, for you, it's a, a, a faith walk. And, um, you know, the, the whole thing about it is in the last couple of years and part of why I started the show was, you know, I've seen a lot of people retreat into fear and retreat away from life and, and retreat and basically uh, shrink in, 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 in the face of danger as opposed to facing the danger and finding a way to overcome the danger and finding a way to move forward in spite of whatever the dangers or obstacles or challenges were being presented in their lives or our lives. And so that kind of concerned me that uh, too many people were moving in the wrong direction instead of finding that faith over fear, finding that courage, you know, accepting whatever dangers were there as real, but finding a way to not let the danger stop you from moving forward in life but taking that step forward anyway uh, in the face of that fear. Oh, 100%. I mean, life is short. You know, a lot of people think, oh, I've got 50 years, I've got 80 years, I've got 90 years. Some people get 10 years, some people get 20. That's um, right. When you think about each day as a gift, and when you wake up smelling roses instead of pushing up roses, you know, it's a good day. And if you're going to take that day and waste it by by cowering and staying in your, in your house and not interacting with people, you know, Human beings are not wired to devices. We're not wired to the to be television people. We are wired to be interactive, communicative people of touch. That's what the human being is. And that differentiates us from so many other animals on the planet. And so when you take that, that element away, when you try to isolate people, we're not made for isolation. Yes, you, it's good to have your me time and it's good to have your downtime and it's good to focus and take a break. But we as human beings are created to interact and communicate and and be with other human beings. And so when you try to isolate that and take away that form of communication and that form of touch and that interpersonal relationship, you are actually wasting so much of the time you have left on the planet. So, in, and it was so sad because like during COVID, for example, in the very beginning, no one knew what the heck was going on. So yeah, sure, take caution, be cautious, but don't be devastated. Don't cower in fear. Don't walk away from life, hit life head on. I mean, you only get one. That's so right. if you're wasted, cowering in fear and running from people and, and sticking, you know, having four walls around you and, and hiding behind devices and walls and not getting out there and experiencing and living life, it's your loss because you can't go back. We don't get a replay. You know, I mean, this is it. This is your one shot. So you better, you know, love it while you have it and, and, and be thankful for every breath you get and make choices based on deep rooted, firm foundation, not by what someone is telling you a media pop head or a tv show or a newspaper article you know really sit down and get rooted and get grounded and remember you know you are you but you have so much potential and the human body is an amazing amazing instrument that has so many ways to be resilient and being resilient and being courageous or you know they go hand in hand because you know you can't get knocked down only if people let if you let people knock you down just like you can't get hurt unless you let others hurt you so it's all a matter of choice and a mind over matter, faith over fear and, and being a resilient, courageous individual is what we're all, you know, we all have the ability to do some not as easy as others. And I get it. I get people get depressed and I get life is hard for a lot of people. But um, believe me, if 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 I didn't live what I've lived through in my lifetime, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have believed it all happened to me either. I mean, medically speaking, I've gone through more than a lot of people will ever go through. And I'm still going through it. So, um, 
you know, you just, but I'm not going to let that control me or control the outcome of my trajectory to keep going and, and keep making a difference while I'm on the planet. Well, you know, and we'll talk about your, your personal experience and the book Resilience. We'll get into that, that after because I want you to share those lessons and those experiences and what you learned from them. But, you know, what you're saying, Annie, is so true because we are resilient and, and, and resilience is a it, it is a superpower, but it's a it's a superpower that comes from choice. It does. It does. It's not automatic that you're resilient. You don't have to be resilient. You can be not resilient if you want to. You you can retreat into getting smaller, not leaving your house, whether it's COVID or anything else, um, that keeps you from being stronger and building that that muscle. And resilience is a muscle, and you have to build it just like anything else. And you do it by by using it. Um, and the people, you know, in the last two years, the people I know who you know responded by going out and, and throwing themselves more into the world had really a powerful two years as opposed to being isolated and losing that social connection and losing that energy that we need that, you know, and I'm, I'm somebody, my battery gets charged by people. So mm -hmm. I, I'm not gonna cut my battery off and start, you know, I want that uh, energy from people. And so I, I stayed out there in the world and I'm glad I did, um, you know, and, and I knew there was real risk. And there's always real risk in everything we do. And yet, you know, it, it's still worth it anyway, even though there is real risk to go ahead and do it. So, you know, you're, take, take us a little bit, Annie, through your life. I mean, you started out in Minnesota, you uh, came out and did stuff in the uh, in industry and, and reporting and all that. Take us through that early phase that, and then take, and then we're gonna start going through piece by piece, the thing that changed your life, that communication with the Marine, um, your personal experience with the attack on the plane and the injuries that you had to overcome because of that, and then your book and why you wrote the book and what's in the book. So we're going to go through all that. But take us to the beginning, Minnesota. I was up in Minnesota uh, for two months. Love the people in Minnesota, if I can say that. Um, yeah, sure. Don't you know? Yeah, I love the Duluth. <laughs> Just some sweet, um, kind, loving people, especially in Duluth. I didn't get to spend all over the state, but I, but I love the folks up there, and uh, can't wait to hang out with them again. But take us through that as a Minnesotan and your and your accent and all that great stuff. <laughs> well, actually, I only spent a very short amount of my time. I was born in Minnesota. I was born in Bloomington and then our Edina, Bloomington area. And my folks had a house there. And we spent a lot of our time at Lake Minnetonka, which okay. Kevin and I, um, Kevin Sorbo and I both share the fun memories of Lake Minnetonka. But um, mom and dad, when they first got married, had um, moved to, from Illinois up to Minnesota. And that's where they had me. And I'm an only child. And then they moved back to Illinois when I was young. And um, dad, you know, always due to dad's career because mom was a stay-at-home mom, fortunately. Uh, they were in a position that, that she could be a stay-at-home mom. And so we went back to Illinois. We were in the Palatine, Illinois area. My dad was from Rockford. My mom was from a small town named Manunk, which is down kind of by Bloomington, Pontiac area. Okay. And so we were in Palatine. And then after Palatine, my dad got transferred to Southern California. So the bulk of my adult and growing years was in Southern California, junior high school, high school, finished um, there. I went to Mission Viejo High School down in Mission Viejo and then went on to Cal State Long Beach. And then after Cal State Long Beach, I was at American Film Institute and then did my upper grad at UCI. And so I was really embedded in the Orange County, Los Angeles, Southern California life for the bulk of my time. Although when I was younger, my mom and dad always sent me home for the summers to be with my grandparents back in the little town of Manunk, Illinois. 
So yeah. most of my summers were spent back in the Midwest. So I still have the deep rooted Midwest upbringing in me. And I always felt that the Midwest was home. I, I enjoyed California. I, I did. I, um, I recently moved away from there, but um, I, I had a lot of friends on both. I had friends in Illinois. I had family. We were the only family that left the Midwest area and went west due to my dad's business. And so we were kind of the odd man out and we made friends with people that oddly enough were from back there and moved to California for business as well. And so we would share our holidays with them and and I would always go home to Illinois for the summer. So kind of growing up, I had the best of both worlds. I had the Southern California life and I had the Midwest, Illinois, and my cousins are in uh, Wisconsin and Iowa. So I was always around those states. And then after high school, actually in early junior high and when I was 12, I started modeling up in Los Angeles with um, Mary Webb Davis and Nina Blanchard. So I was always in Los Angeles and that's kind of where the, the fashion part of it came into. But then when I was really young, my parents were friends with McLean Stevenson from MASH. And I called him Uncle Mac and that's who introduced me to the world of acting. And wow. so my very first acting was at Laguna Moulton Theater in Laguna Beach, California. Lisa Surratt was my first director. And those are little tidbits that you always remember. It's funny how you remember your firsts. And then um, I was with Mac and he took, he, back then he was coaching Battle of the Network Stars and Farrah Fawcett was on his team and I was her ball girl with her and Lee Majors and, and huh. just got introduced to, that was like reality TV way back then was Battle of the Network Stars. And, um, and McLean had told my parents that, you know, I had the bug and that once it hit, I, it was going to be hard to try to, you know, <laughs> calm her down and keep her away. And my dad was a lot older than my mom. And back when I started to kind of um, have opportunities in the industry, it was when Buffy from Buff, uh, Buffy and Jody committed suicide and Chico and the man had a young uh, youth suicide. And there were a lot of young teens and, and younger committing suicide in the entertainment business. And so my dad wow. was absolutely not. She's not going to LA. She's going to college. So my parts were small. I was on chips and some other ones, which were phenomenal for me, but I had opportunities to go further at a younger age. And my dad put his foot down and said, uh, you're going to college and you're getting a degree. And then if you decide you want to go to Hollywood, go ahead. <laughs> yeah. He got scared for you. I hear you. Yeah. So, you know, and can't blame him. I mean, it worked yeah. out the way it was supposed to work out. I did have a scholarship in theater arts to Cal State Long Beach. And there I um, transferred my major to communications actually, because the theater arts and I, it was a great experience, but it wasn't, once I got in there, I didn't want to do Shakespearean right away. I was more enamored with the camera and with what all happened with the camera and behind the camera. I'm not a person that needs to stand on stage and get applause. I'm one of those people that really had a an affinity for the film and television. Yeah. So Ted Dawson, who was in sports casting in Los Angeles, was um, my mentor. I was with Ted for years and he and his wife Joyce at the time had, had boys, they never had a girl. And so I kind of adopted that family and they adopted me. And not only did I get a bunch of brothers and Ted, I got a grand um, education in sports casting and sports broadcasting at ABC, KABC TV in Los Angeles. And then Ted moved to Dallas and went to KDFW in Dallas and then on to Albuquerque and everywhere he went, I was able to go with him. And wow. my knowledge and and experience um, grew and it was all thanks to Ted. I couldn't have had a better mentor and coach um, in a in a second father figure as well as in a in an esteemed, you know, experienced, very talented broadcaster. 
and that opened doors for me um, with the on-camera, but as well as off-camera and relationships and learning all aspects of the industry, which were which were phenomenal. When I had to make the challenge, the chance, or the decision, not the chance, the decision after college, the only opportunities for women in sports back then was really, you know, ESPN. I was I was in their way before Gail Gardner ever, you know, popped into ESPN. And did mm -hmm. I really want to uproot and move to Connecticut, Bristol, Connecticut, and and give up everything? And I was too close to my parents to say yeah. And I don't, I didn't live it, eat it, breathe it, and die it. And I wasn't going to use the casting couch, which we all know is very prevalent back then, and still, it still happens. However, you want to sure. code sure. it. The Me Too movement had, had been around long before they ever decided to use hashtags. And right. so I, I chose different avenues and I um, continued on in event planning and producing and doing things that I could do and stay true to me. Um, I knew that in the sports world, once they decided women were allowed in locker rooms, that wasn't going to be for me. My family and friends were all professional male athletes and you don't need to go in a man's locker room. They remember a pitch for 50 years. They remember a first down and an interception or a touch or a touchdown or a basket. I mean, those guys remember everything. There is no need to go into a locker room and see them in a towel with soap and water. And I just didn't believe in it. And I still don't. I don't think women need to be in a men's locker room. I never have and I never I never will. I won't go there and I don't need to. Um, and so that kind of curtailed my sports casting career because that's where people were forcing women to go. And I wasn't willing to go there. So I kept going on with the um, event planning and producing. And then my best girlfriend out in Arizona was a flight attendant. And I saw the flexibility you could have in that life. And I thought that would be really fun. And it would allow me to have a kind of a state steady income while I did all the other things. Because as you all well know, in our industry, it's feast or famine. Yep. If you get a what, what year? What year was that? Did you get um, you, you started to pursue that as a flight attendant? I, that was in the early 90s. That was actually in 93, 94. Okay. And I got on and I flew with Southwest Airlines. And that allowed me, um, it's a very different industry now. But back then, you didn't, you weren't on reserves for as long as you're on reserves now. And to be on reserve as a flight attendant is they, you, you have a block of days that you fly, but you don't know if you're going to fly, when you're going to fly, how you're going to fly. And you sit reserve, meaning you have to be like within an hour or two away from the airport. So you can't really commute. Um, and depending on where, you know, a lot of flight attendants, once you're off reserve, you can live pretty much anywhere, commute to your domicile and, and start your trip. So back then I was able to live in California and fly out of, I was first based in Dallas, then Phoenix, then, or no, Dallas, then Chicago, then Phoenix, then Oakland, then back to Phoenix before it ended. And it allowed me a steady paycheck as well as freedom and flexibility to pursue other things. And it also allowed me to uh, extend the travel benefits to my parents. So I felt like I could give back to them for all that they had given me in that small gesture of, you know, free airline tickets. Right. So, and it also allowed me to get back to Illinois and see my grandma, um, who I was still very close to after my grandpa passed. And I could spend overnights there, grab a rent a car and go down and spend it with her and get back in time in the morning. So it, it allowed me things that it, it, that I really was choosing to, to pursue. And then in 94, uh, December 30th of 94, we were on a trip. We were in Albuquerque. It was snowing. We were trying to hurry. And um, some some unique individuals got on the plane that were a pill from the moment they got on the plane. And just after takeoff, 
a, a scuffle started. And as the story goes, I got, you know, my job was to secure the plane. And so I got to um, in the middle of it. And lo and behold, they didn't want me in the middle of it. So they threw some punches and knocked the wind out of me and hit me. And we didn't know that night or while it was happening, I got the wind knocked out of me when the cockpit, but I had fractured my spine and oh. did, some, did some damage. So I was down for quite a while, um, not flying, trying to rehab and going through that and going through the whole uh, rigmarole of on the job injury and, and what that entails. And if the airline's going to back you and support you, which mine did not. Um, and that was, that was hard in itself because back then I was very rah-rah. I mean, I was huge with the airline. I did, you know, PSAs with them and went to all their, whenever they painted an airplane, I was at the big festivities and just kind of like gave everything I had to give to that job and to that company. And then when something goes wrong, they didn't give back at, at all. <laughs> not even in a, um, a, not even a little bit. So that was something I had to learn, um, not only getting through the injury, um, which to this day, I still have back problems. I had two major surgeries in the last two years. And um, I was just in with my back surgeon this week, actually, back in California, because we're still trying, trying to fine tune some stuff. Mm. But I haven't been pain free since 1994. There's not a day no. that has gone by in this life from from December 30th, 94, that I have had with that was pain free. So that oh. did change a lot of trajectory in my world as far as um, learning how to live in, in constant pain and chronic pain and not let it get you down. Because that is a an interesting um, walk to have to walk. Yeah, and it's not easy. And like and like you you said in the beginning, you know, we don't know um, the trajectory of life. We don't know how long we have. We don't know what's going to happen. Because if that incident didn't happen, you would have went on a different trajectory. So it it, it threw you into a path you didn't choose. And Correct. Definitely not on a path that you wanted. That wasn't what you wanted to experience or have to experience in life. But unfortunately, you did. And, and then now you were in a situation that you had to deal with that for a lifetime. And that's when, you know, uh, and, and, you know, some people have a hard time just dealing with normal stuff. But that all of a sudden throws a big um, challenge into your life forever. And so that's kind of then you go from there. So keep keep going and keep take us a little further. Then um, after that nightmare um the the what do you want to call it the legal parts and the battle and and the when i finally let, ended the career and didn't no longer work there and just dealt with the the pain i left that industry and then um moved on in my event business was actually my i was a consultant and i was consulting and doing lots of events for a lot of my celebrity friends and fundraisers and all that and while i was down uh, rehabbing from that industry, I started Angels Within Inc., which was a nonprofit, but we were considered dormant because we didn't raise money. I, I never, if you had ever said you're going to, you know, wake up and start a nonprofit and have to raise money, all that, I'd been like, whoa, that's so not what, the Why did you start that uh, at first? Start there. Why did you start that particular nonprofit? And like you said, it was dormant, but why did you even start it? What was the well, reason? I was When I was rehabbing, um, the charity of choice for the airline that I worked for was the Ronald McDonald House Charities. And so okay. I was volunteering at Ronald McDonald House Charities in Orange County when I was rehabbing and on the ground and couldn't fly. And I'd be over at the hospital or at the Ronald McDonald House, and I would see all these kids in the hospital that were terminal, but there was nobody in there with them. So they were, you know, mom and dad, a terminal illness for a child oftentimes, you know, the parents have to work. They can't sit vigil at a bedside 
And sometimes these, in, these illnesses can go on for a long extended period of time. And so there was all these kids in the hospital that basically didn't have anybody there. And so I went back to my friend who at the time was managing the Ronald McDonald house. I'm like, well, you know, why aren't these, don't these kids have anybody? Where's Make-A-Wish? Where's this? Where's that? And this was in my, my infancy of understanding the nonprofit industry was that, you know, each nonprofit out there has their own mission. And if their mission is not to hang out in a hospital room and, and accompany these kids and just be there, then it wasn't in their scope of the work that they did. You know, Make-A-Wish has a very specific scope and there's others out there. And so back then I just said, well, well, I want to get my friends together. We're going to go hang out and read stories and read books and play with these kids and give mom and dads, the mom and dads that are there a night off so that they can go have date night or whatever, because they need to refocus. And um, in order to do that, you had to be some kind of a formal entity. You can't just show up. Right. <laughs> so right. I started Angels Within Inc. And we did it. Um, a girlfriend of mine, Leah Miller out in Wisconsin was a, an attorney a firm called Michael Best and Frederick, and they helped me establish it. And we did it to give time. We had no intention of ever having, you know, staff or, or raise money or events or anything. We were just going to give time to these kids. And then I'm extremely passionate about our older community, our senior and our elders. And I, um, I have a very short patience for people that just put their seniors in a nursing home and leave them there and don't mm -hmm. go there. And so the two things that we did was we spent time at hospitals, um, typically children's hospital. And then we also went to nursing homes and we would do game night, card night, um, bingo. We would just hang out and, and share some joy with the seniors that were in these nursing homes that didn't have any family coming to visit. And cause I, like I said, I have no patience for that. That's how my philanthropy started. And it was, it just stayed that way. But the IRS thought we were dormant back then cause we turned all of our paperwork in and we filed everything. We just never raised any money. Right. And then that's when fast forward 9-11 happened and life for me, as I know, it changed. <laughs> as it has for so many others. And how did it change? You know, it's kind of funny you talk about it and, you know, you have a um, you talk about uh, a friendship with a wounded Marine. And I was traveling uh, just recently. I was on a plane and the person sitting next to me and I looked at it and I just said, you know, this guy looks like he's a Marine and he was. And we started talking. He was in the Marine Corps, still is, 21 years. And, you know, it took me through his life and his stories. Um, but he, he joined after 9-11, um, and it transformed his life. That's why he joined and became a Marine. And just an amazing uh, uh, young man. And a, but, but for you, you ended up having a, a chance pen pal with a wounded Marine. And you say 9-11. Well, when we became pen pals, he wasn't wounded. Oh, OK. I, um, I, we all had 9-11 and it impacted each of us differently. So everybody has their own story with that. I don't know of anybody that calls America home that doesn't, that was alive back then old enough to remember 9-11 that doesn't have their own um, moment or their own memory of how that deeply rooted in their soul. You know, if, if that event didn't, didn't move you and didn't completely gut you, then um, you shouldn't be living in this country. But um after that happened, I wanted to do something for our military, but I didn't, I didn't know what my dad was drafted, but he was too tall to serve. So he never got to serve and that always um, weighed on his mind. He, he never got over the fact that he did not get to serve. Wow. And then I had two uncles that served in the army, my mom's brothers, but they, they were back during the Korean conflict. They never talked about their service. One played football in the army. The other was a cook. Um, 
but they never they never shared anything about their service and so i never really had anybody a, a direct contact with people that were actively serving and in 93 i dated someone who had just gotten done with his service in the navy seals again that generation they didn't talk so i didn't know anything about what he did in in that i knew him as his new life which was um contracting and and, and he was working that in security and, and contracting but never ever spoke of his time in the seals so i didn't know anything about the seals or their their service or what they did like i do now i'm very um very embedded in that community and very privileged to be so in all of our special forces actually um but so i was at a family reunion and just chatting back and forth and one of my cousins were probably fifth cousins i'm i'm guessing um was dating a young man who was getting ready to deploy to iraq who was a marine and with his but with his cousin and his other buddy and they were all from low point illinois which is back in the area of where i did most of my growing up summers and they were all stationed at camp pendleton uh. i had remembered my grandpa my dad had served in world war ii in the beaches of normandy as a u.s he for the united states but he was still a norwegian citizen and um, I remember finding a postcard from my grandpa to my grandma written in pencil from the beaches of Normandy. I wow. never met them because my dad and mom were 16 years apart. So my grandparents on my dad's side were deceased before I was ever born. But remembering that postcard and meeting these kids, I'm like, you know, I didn't actually meet the guys. I just met my cousin who was dating the one. Um, I thought I could pen pal because why sure. not? I could write that. <laughs> So that's how I got the addresses to mail these young Marines who had just left Camp Pendleton and were deployed in Iraq. And we three started pen paling. It was um, Jesse, Tyler, and Adam. And Adam and Tyler were on the front lines and Jesse was more doing construction and rebuilding and transporting things. So he and I corresponded the most. The other two would correspond when they could. But now mind you, back then in 04, we didn't have all of the technology that we have today. We had AOL Instant Messenger and pen and paper, and that was it. So right. we could only communicate with them via AOL Instant Messenger. There wasn't even cameras. It was just your in online chat. If I set my alarm to Iraq time, and if they got to an FOB forward operating base and were able to communicate while well, everybody else was trying to communicate as well, because I wasn't a family member. I was just a pen pal. Right. And, and they would write letters back and forth. And Jesse wrote the most. And he would write just the neatest cards and letters. And he'd sketch drawings. He was quite the artist. And so these three became my, I called them my three. And um, one of their dads was making dog tags with their photos on them. So I wore their dog tags. And all of my friends and family kind of were enamored with this story. And everybody wanted to be a part of it because everybody wanted to do something to give back. And a lot of people were in the same boat I was in, didn't know how or didn't have a connection to anyone serving in Iraq. So it kind of snowballed and my packages became larger and friends, family, church members would all contribute more things. And the smaller packages became boxes and the boxes became bigger or multiple boxes. And it just kind of grew that way organically. And then in December, I was notified that, um, Tyler and Jess were sitting on a truck back to back and a caravan of trucks going through Iraq and they were hit by a suicide bomber. Mm. And I was told that um, Tyler was in Germany in really bad shape and that Jesse didn't make it. And oh. I didn't know how to process that because again, I'm not a family member, I'm just a pen pal. So right. I don't have any of the um, resources available. I don't know how to get in touch with the family. And then where do you put all this energy? These were like for you know six months this was my extracurricular activity. These kids were, you know, 
everything that I was trying to put extra effort in on my free time. And so I found all the letters that Jesse had given me and I bundled them all up and I found a way to send them to his parents in Illinois. Wow. And I remember going to Hallmark to get a sympathy card and you're standing there and I've never met these people. They don't even know I exist for all I know. And there's, there's nothing like that. Like, well, if you're going to do a sympathy card, there's got to be some kind of a connection to do the appropriate card. So instead, I, I just got a thank you card and I thanked the family for their service. And I did not mention anything that I knew anything about anything that happened to Jesse. I did it, I just said, these are some amazing, you know, I've been a pen pal with your son. Here's some of the amazing correspondences I've had. I thought you would really enjoy these as a keepsake. You know, thank your entire family for serving and shift it off. And then I didn't hear anything back. And then we had Christmas and we had New Year's and I tried to focus on Thai in Germany. And then we were into January and about two weeks into January, my cell phone rings and it's a woman's voice. And she says, hi, Annie, this is Paula, Jesse's mom. Well, now, as you can probably tell, I'm a little animated and I'm, I don't really have a stranger. So I got real excited and I was like, oh, my gosh, hi, how are you? And she was very short and stern and to the point. And she said, look, I'm at Brooke Army Medical Center in San Antonio, Texas. Jesse survived that blast. He's facing double amputation. He's burnt over 80% of his body and he's asking for his pen pill. Will you come? Wow. Yeah. Oh. So, of course, I said yes. And the next thing I know, uh, one of the organizations that support the Marines was flying me to San Antonio, Texas. I remember it like it was yesterday, getting off the airplane. And down at the end of the escalator is a guy in army fatigues because Brooke is an army medical center. It's, it, you know, right. and especially back then. What people don't realize is back then, the army facilities were not prepared to bring in all the other branches at the numbers they were bringing in. And back then, at that time in the war, we were only bringing combat wounded that were males. Women weren't there. I mean, they were overseas and they were deployed and they were doing roles, but they weren't on the front line. So thank, thank God. We didn't have a lot of female um, wounds that were we were seeing that were coming home. Right. So I got to Brooke and I met everybody down there. And Jesse saved his leg. He's he's got he's a single leg amputee below the knee, and he um, he still has his burns and all that. But we we met and um, at the time I got there, Tyler was from was already back from Germany and he was there as well. So I got to meet Ty and his parents and oh, his mom. And just went into a world I knew nothing about. I'd never been to a VA, let alone a full-on, you know, military hospital that was bringing in the amount of guys we were bringing in with the wounds we were seeing. And also, this was a whole different war. We had medical technology on the front lines where we were able to save more than we had ever been able to save before, which, again, That's I right. didn't know like I know now. Right. But um, so we were seeing all different kinds of injuries, but our the medics were were so equipped to do so much more. So it was a whole different time, especially for the for Brooke and, you know, Bethesda and Walter Reed and the Naval Hospital St. Balboa down in San Diego. And those hospitals, none of them back then communicated with, the, I mean, they communicated with each other, but they weren't on the same computer systems. They didn't, they didn't um, process individuals the same. They didn't treat the same. They were all kind of like their own freestanding facilities with no commonalities among them and so it was a very um uh what do you want to what's the word it just there was no unity in how they were bringing guys and gals home and how they were treating them and everything because it was and it was all thrown at them so quickly that nobody was really ready 
for that to integrate the hospitals together. Now they've come leaps and bounds. But and so when I'm down there, I'm with the Marine Corps family and no no dish to Brook Army Medical Center at all. They're phenomenal. But they weren't there was no Marine Corps staff there to process the paperwork. And so a lot of times the people that I were with, things were falling through the cracks with no no ill will and no plan. You know, it wasn't sure. planned. It just happened. But I'm not family and I don't know what protocol is. And I, I don't understand that you have to watch your P's and Q's. I kind of got a little vocal and stood up for the people that I was concerned about and got the nickname Bullhorn for the Brave. And um, what was that? What was that name again? Bullhorn for the Brave. Bullhorn for the Brave. Yeah. Cool. cool. And it was just, it was that courageously thing again. It was like, you know, you sometimes you just live courageously and you don't even realize you're doing it because you're not supposed to buck authority in the military. You're supposed to go through protocol and you're supposed to follow the procedures. And as a family, you know, and I wasn't any of that. I wasn't in, the, I wasn't a family member. I wasn't an employee of the government. I didn't work for the hospital. I'm just a civilian pen pal who showed up and her Marine was getting kind of the raw end of the deal on some of the communication stuff. And so I piped up. And you, and, became, you became a voice and, 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 and good for you that you were that voice because you know, going through protocol probably wasn't going to be the most helpful thing, uh, given what they needed. And you just stood out because, A, you didn't know it. And two, it didn't matter because you wanted to be a voice for him and for right. that. So right. you stood up. And that 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 says a lot as what you should do in life. That's what well, you did. Well, that goes back to the whole faith, living faithfully. Because for me, it was a God thing. You know, right. I just think he used me to be, I was a vehicle for him to, to do whatever needed to be done to, to raise awareness, to support these families, to, you know, tell people, Hey, yo, this is wrong. We need to fix this. And, um, and knew that I would be dumb enough to go and go for it. And, you know, <laughs> darn the consequences. I mean, what are they going to do? Throw me out? I, there was nothing. I was that one. They kick you out of the military. You weren't in. So. Yeah. And I wasn't a family member getting in trouble. And I, you know, so I mean, I did get called the protocol offices a couple of times on certain things, but then I had to learn each branch because they're so different. I mean, you know, they even have different ranks for di and different names. It, it's just, it was a whole, and I'm blonde, you know, it was a big challenge. <laughs> but in all my experience down there, Jesse and I would bust in on other Marines that were in the hospital when Jess was staying over at the Fisher house. And back then, again, the guys didn't have the technology that they have today. All they had was a TV remote control and a hospital bed. And Jesse would be like, dude, she's from Hollywood. I'd be like, no, 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 no. <laughs> oh, but dude. And he, so for them, because I had done some things in the television world, which were minor and you know, as well as I do in the industry, you don't talk about that unless you are Julia Roberts, you know, sure, unless you've sure. earned the right to say, and so, like, I was definitely not making a living doing my craft by any right. stretch of the imagination. So I would never talk about it or boast about it or even connect myself to it. But to Jess, you know, he'd ask questions and I'd say, oh, yeah, well, you know, and little, little tidbits would slip out, but not in a boastful manner, just in a fun, yeah, yeah well, I have to yeah. Just, just sharing stuff with your life. and absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So he'd run in there and make it sound like I was Julia freaking Robert. <laughs> <and> I, <laughs> I'm like, no, 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 no. And the kids that were laying in the hospital bed would grab their TV remote because I represented that to them. And they'd say, does America support us? Wow. They weren't seeing it on the television when they're laying in a bed in sure. ICU or in the hospital in Brooke. Sure. And that resonated with me. That really kind of 
flipped a, a switch inside of me where I was close enough to the industry to see it, but I was also not anybody with a name. I was, you know, I, I used to say I'm, I was a nobody and people say, you're not a nobody, but in, in the world of entertainment in Hollywood, sure. there's a, so many people in that industry that if, if you've made it and you're making a living is how I define it. If you're making sure. a living at your craft, whether you're a producer, a director, or a screenwriter, an actor, a, a lighting tech, and you name it, then you have the right to say, you know, that's what you do for a living. For me, not ever making a living at it to where it could sustain me, I just never felt that I was successful. You had other identities, other things that you were successful at. That wasn't one that you had the uh, uh, identity with. But then right. you know, all of this, Annie, you know, you, A, you, you, you took action, you, you, you went out to uh, be of service, um, just like you said, your faith, and you felt like uh, God used you. Um, but then you could have stopped there. You know, it was, it, you know, you didn't need to go further, but you did. <laughs> well. You, right? You could have stopped. I mean, but you didn't. And then you went and then you started to take this and create something that could be of even more service. And, right. And I came home and I went to my entertainment lawyer and um, Frank Wheaton, who has been with me for since uh, since the 80s. And I said, hey, I know what I'm supposed to do. And he's looking at me and I'm like, <laughs> we're going to change Angels Within. We're going to re-register. We're going to call it American Soldier Network because, you know, Toby Keith's song American Soldier was my inspiration behind ah, that. Interesting. And um we're going to create shows of content that honor, support, and celebrate all of our veterans and all of our military here at home. And we're going to raise awareness for their needs here at home and blah, blah. And I just was going 90 miles an hour. And Frank was <laughs> nodding and listening. And he's like, honey, I will do whatever you need to do. But I'm going to tell you one thing right now. It'll never happen. It'll be the hardest thing you've ever done. And it's going to be political. And they're going to paint you red. And they're going to throw you in a bucket. And Hollywood won't support you. Wow. And I wow. looked back at him and I was like, political? This has nothing to do with politics. I could give a rest <laughs> behind if you vote red or blue or green or purple or if you don't vote. This is about celebrating and taking care of our veterans and our military. That's and right. he was like, he's like, okay, we'll go for it and I will help you do this. And so we did. We refiled, we reestablished, and American Soldier Network is the DBA now of Angel with an Ink is still the legal original name. We still have it, but we are DBA. American Soldier Network and, and um, what year what year did you start American Soldier Network? 2004. 2004, okay. Okay. Yep. Yeah. And so yeah, we're coming up on 20 years. Ooh, yeah. yeah, wow. And I've and never taken a paycheck. We had we, zero paid staff and we never and had we, we met or when you uh, we I interviewed you for that um uh, film The Flag, you know, you you were you know how important the flag was and how important it was to serve our uh, veterans and that was a, a very powerful uh, thing and you were you were very powerful in the uh, i remember the interview in the uh uh the cemetery there when i interviewed you and, and it, it just was a very powerful interview because you had so much passion and compassion um for the veterans and what you were trying to accomplish um, you can tell it hasn't died <laughs> no no nor should it nor should and just i tell you talking to this this guy sat down to me on the plane this guy in the marine and we didn't stop talking for like close to two hours and it, it you know it's it you need that compassion and passion for for the veterans and for the military and for what they're doing and their families and, and all of that and and there needs to be more of it uh, not less um, oh, 100%, especially now because you know unfortunately in this 
this day and age of wokeism, it it goes there too. And we've yeah. got some bad apples in higher places in our own military that are choosing wokeism versus choosing the principles and the foundations and the history of our brilliant military and leaving all of that out of it. Politics yeah. should never, ever cross into the military, ever. It, it well, should never have a place there. And our, our leadership in the military needs to go back to its roots and go back to what they were founded on and what they what they took an oath to and what they swore an oath to because the men and women that are the boots on the ground, these men and women are giving their lives and they give that blank paycheck, you know, that including their life if asked to give it. And sometimes these people that get, I call it when you go to DC, you go with the best of intentions and we've got Congress people too. I mean, I've seen Congress people that happen to be veterans that serve that aren't going to get a free pass from me. If you go to DC and you turn and you start being you know, all about lobbying and money and you don't hold true to your conviction and your oath to the Constitution, shame on you. And I've seen so many people go to D.C. and then they get there with the biggest heart, the biggest ego. They're ready to go. They're courageous. They're going to be on fire. And then they take a taste of the Potomac water. Yeah. We'll all see. goes to heck. And, yeah, and it's money it's, and power and it just becomes disgustingly. And, you, and, it, 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 and it's, you know, you, you get the... Uh, the acclaim of the people for, you know, they praise you for doing the wrong things. And then that goes to your head instead of, you know, uh, not wanting any praise, but do the right thing. And, you know, Correct. that's kind of what we talked about with this Marine today. Cause you know, we were talking about old school values and he said, yeah, I love that, man. He said, because, you know, we, that's what we need is those old school values. And in the military too, we're, we're losing it. And, and you realize that, you know, we gotta have that respect, that honor, that service, that 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 um, being willing to do what is needed to do to 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 succeed at what the, the mission is, and 100%. and the people leaders need to lead by example from the front, not by putting other people out and not leading. And there, there's a great and I'll just mention this. We we'll probably go a little bit over, but you know I got to see um, uh, a documentary just recently from a guy I met at the GI Film Festival who had did a movie out there, Army Guy. And he did a documentary that's out there now on Amazon called Send Me. And it's uh -huh. about, you may be familiar with it. Um, yes. Uh, and, and Nick Pomachiano, um, uh, I think I'm pronouncing it wrong or right. But, he, you know, 12 of them went out there to um, rescue people when our government didn't do what it should have done in Afghanistan. And they tried to, they put their lives on the line to go try and rescue both allies who helped them, uh, children, Christian children just people who needed to get rescued out of Afghanistan in that uh, really horrible retreat that we made. And it's a great, it's a great documentary, but once again, it shows that people who serve and lead, whether they have a, a position or not, those are leaders. And the ones who have a position and a title ain't necessarily leaders if they're not really leading and serving the way they should be. Correct. I mean, th that oath is against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Right. And Definitely, we have a lot of domestic individuals right now that are hurting our country and that are not protecting our great country and our constitution. We're a very young country. I mean, people don't think about that. We're junior. We're young on the globe as far as being a country. And so we're going to have, you know, growing pains. But these are these are beyond measure. And if we're not careful, all of the lives that have been laid down by our veterans and all the years of service, honorary service that these men and women have done, including those that are still serving today, is going to all be for naught. And that can't happen. And it and it's not red or blue. It's a matter of 
understanding, everybody should pick up the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and read it and understand it, you know, and know it. And then understand that when it comes to our veterans and our military, not only do they do we owe them everything, but if we don't start stepping up and taking care of them properly and without red tape and without hesitation and without question, who are we? I mean, shame on us. And there's so many organizations out there. I'll just, this is my little soapbox, but there's over 40,000 nonprofits registered to the IRS with an EIN number that claim they're 501c3s doing things in the veteran community military space alone. Yeah. Wow. Everybody gets into this, oh, it's all about me. And I've seen so many nonprofits, they're big or they have these egos where they think they're the one and only and they're the only one out there. And, you know, I'll be damned if you're going to collaborate. If everybody out there who was doing something, I mean, really doing something for our veterans and military would collaborate with other nonprofit organizations and leaders. Just think how much further we would go. Who cares if you're a nonprofit that has $83, $83 million in reserve, if you have millions, or if you're a little guy and you don't have a lot of cash. Most of those of us that have less cash and big effort is where a lot of the effort comes from. And a lot of these organizations with boatloads of cash don't have the outreach that the little mom and pop ones do. And, and everybody needs to work together. We need to collaborate and we need to take on these tasks because the suicide epidemic is huge and it's not going away. And that's what we work on. That's what we're about. That's what Wreck Up is about. And, and Wreck Up is, is something that uh, is uh, flowed out of uh, American Soldiers Network and you started that and you yes. used it. Wreck Up is a, it's wreckup.org and it's a free online portal or you know website portal that is out there for anybody can look at it. You don't have to be a veteran or a military member, but if you are in the veteran military space and you are struggling and you need help, it's full of resources. It also has a place in there called the Foxhole. Now the Foxhole is partnered with IDME, which is a verification company in the United States and only um, active duty or veterans with DD-214s that are verified through IDME can get in the Foxhole. And it's a, it's a safe online chat space for them that nobody from outside world can see nobody from big tech nobody from the government it's a private or online safe space for veterans and military members to get in and connect with each other and help each other out and then there's um the aid station <coughs> excuse me has resources where there's treatment uh modalities and options aside from the va based on zip code and this is going to get more robust as we learn of more places but we don't just throw a place in there because it says they do treatment for either alcoholism depression addiction pts tbi um they've actually been places that we've we've either been referred to or we've researched and found them and so if anybody out there has any others that they want added to us find us on instagram at the american soldier network facebook at the american soldier network um you can email me at theannienelson at gmail.com. But if there's other treatment facilities and modalities that are out there working and having success with the veteran and military population in helping mental health, and I call it brain health to get rid of the stigma because for some reason there's a stigma with mental health. And yeah, yeah. That that's, makes, that's, a good, that's a good point to, dis, to separate the two, absolutely. Yeah, it's brain health. And we all have a brain and everybody's brain is different. And I don't know about yeah. a human on the planet that doesn't have stuff. And, so, and, and, and some things can damage the brain, uh, both physical things and uh, substances and all kinds of things can create damage to that brain. Huge. And, 
and there's things to heal the brain as well. And there's all kinds of modalities that can help heal the brain. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a good way of making that distinction. That's a smart distinction. And it's not new. I mean, way back in the day, they used to call it battle rattle, you know? Right. So, and, and we still have battle rattle today. It's just the devices and the, and the explosives and the weaponry that our men and women are using today is a lot more powerful. So the rattle is going to be a lot stronger. A lot, a lot stronger. Yeah. Let me let, I'm going to finish up with you, but just uh, uh, ruckup.org uh, is a place yes. to uh, go forward and check out, obviously. And if you're a military uh, member or, or veteran, you go to the private area on ruckup.org so you can have that safe space to communicate, that private place where you can communicate. You also have American Soldiers Network online, so you can check out that as well. Um, just kind of want to finish up, and, and this is a great book to uh, read, Resilience, and, and you know, the whole. Um, uh, you know, read that on Amazon, get that on Amazon. But I want to have you talk a little bit about that because, you know, that concept, I know people have said, um, as opposed to, you know, post-traumatic uh, stress, there's also post-traumatic resilience a and to be able to find that resilience in response to uh, traumatic events, whether they're in, in war or whether they're in life, like in your case, or in the different ways that people experience a traumatic um, a stress experience, that there's also resilience and to build that resilience to be able to overcome the traumatic uh, incident or, or, or incidents. So tell us about your book. Tell us about what it's about, why you wrote it, and what's the message of it for people. And I recommend everybody to go get it on Amazon. Oh, thank you. Well, it's resilience coming back from crisis with faith, passion, and purpose. And Sergeant Major Kent, who is the 16th Sergeant Major of the Marine Corps, had been on me for years to write a book. And um, I... I've been speaking for years. I'm a public speaker and I've been sharing my story among other things. And when I was beat up on the airline, I had PTS and back then they called it post-traumatic stress syndrome and it wasn't a syndrome. And so I've been an advocate in the mental health, brain health arena for years talking about get rid of the S it's just post-traumatic stress and get rid of the D it's not a disorder. The only reason they use those two words is because insurance companies need to diagnose and that's right. And you know, and syndrome and a disorder fall under the diagnoses, but but then it also puts that person in a box as yeah. opposed to taking them out of a box. And so it, it's good for the pharmaceutical industry and for the diagnosis industry, but it's not as good for the individual who's experienced it. It's not a good way. Right. And it's not a life sentence. I mean, right. it is not a life sentence. You can get through it. You can, you, you, it'll always be with you, but you know, so is your, your heartbeat, you know, it's going to always be with you too. So yep. it, it's not a life sentence and it doesn't have to define you or destroy you. Um, so he had been on me for years to write a book and I've been writing for us veterans magazine for 11 years and I can write about anybody, but to write about yourself was just a daunting thought to me. I was like, Oh gosh, what do you write? What do you put in there? Who really wants to read it? What do they want to know? Golly. And so I started off and I had partnered with someone originally and that partnership did not work out well. And so then I was done. I was like, okay, this is just God saying, you're not going to just don't do the book. And then I met a, a former special forces, green beret, Larry Broughton, who um, you need to have him on this podcast, by the way. Contact, yes, please share his information. I'd he love to. He would be a phenomenal guest. But oh, um, he and I are dear friends, and he got on me, and he's like, you need to finish what you started. And I was like, oh, easy for you to say. You have how many books out, and they're all <laughs> great, <laughs> and, you know? And, and so he introduced me to the woman that um, edits his books, and she and I got along wonderfully, and, and she got me, and she got me through it and we finished it and and um it it wasn't it was a god thing too because 
the stories that came out that we decided to include were based on the power of prayer and what I felt needed to get out there. You don't, you know, there's nothing right. about any romantic relationships or that part of my world that'll always stay private. I'm not one to, you know, kiss and tell type of thing, but it's just basically, you know, I have gone through so much and, and, and when it comes to dealing with our vets and our, and our military members, I relate with them and they relate with me in the fact that I have no clue what it's like to go downrange, nor I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have any idea. Right. And, um, but I do know what it's like to go to your job, to do your job with your whole heart, to love what you do and to get injured on the job and have your employer not back you up sure. and to have lifelong injury come out of that. That messes with your spirit. It messes with your mind. It messes with your soul and it messes with your pain. And I know how to live through chronic pain and I know how to assemble a phenomenal team around me. I mean, it, I didn't have them all pop up. My medical team didn't just pop up overnight. It took years to find who I have. And I am so very blessed with them. And then after all that, I got hit with two major brain tumors, you know, and that was a whole nother part of a journey that is still with me today. And I still, I have a brain scan coming up on November 10th <laughs> mm. and, you know, we still deal with headaches and I'm deaf in this ear and, the eye doesn't work right and my taste buds are whack and it's just um and my balance is off usually <laughs> but because of everything that i was able to get through and through the i chose faith and i chose the hard work i did not choose drugs and alcohol and um drugs and alcohol sometimes are an easy way out and they might numb the pain but on the long on the long end of it it's not a lifestyle that's going to ever be productive or ever really get you out of pain. And you're going to lose a lot more than you ever gain. 100%. So I knew how to circle the wagons and I knew that I could never heal and go through everything that I've gone through alone. You can't, you, you just can't. Right. You need people around. You need, you need people to support. You need a support team to win. Yes. Right. You need your family. You need your friends. You need a small nucleus. You don't need to have, you know, an entire team, a football team yeah. around you, but be kind of fun but, but you, know, you have to especially if you're female um but, uh you need to have the you, know, you need to choose the right people to take on the journey with you and to and to let be on the journey with you and to support you and they might not always understand you because unless you've dealt with trauma unless you've dealt with a brain injury unless you've dealt with chronic pain um it's hard for a lot of people to understand that or empathize with it not asking for sympathy, just understanding and giving you the space to grow and to heal and know who's going to help you pick up the pieces because there's going to be a lot of days when you need to pick those up. And so the book came out of that and um, it was kind of a challenge by Major, by Sergeant Major Kent. And then it was a little needling by Larry and it all got done and it's out there. And um, it's kind of fun now because when I do go to public speaking events, a lot of times they'll have, you know, they'll pre-order X amount of books and so you'll meet people in the line when they're coming by to, to have the book signed and either they've already read it and they want to talk about, you know, exchange those different similarities in the book or, you know, how it touched them or they're buying it for somebody else who they feel has been on a struggling journey and just needs a little, a little boost of inspiration. But the book was done um, to help others. And if I help one person, which it has, then it was all worth it. Well, I think, you know, congratulations. It's not easy. I mean, I've, uh, I'm working, I get two books published now that I did and boy, writing a book is, is hard and maybe one of the hardest things if you're not into that uh, thing. So I, but congratulations on you doing it, but exactly what you're saying, Annie, is if you touch one person and you touch much more than one person in your life, 
and not only with the book, with, with your life and all the projects that you do with American Soldiers Net, uh, Network and Rock Up um, and other things, speaking and all this, the, the work that you've done. But the book as well is another way to touch people and give people inspiration to encourage them to be resilient in their life, whatever they've experienced or may experience in the future. It just gives them that uh, sense of, of what you have to do you know, with that, that, that sense of resilience. So I just want to mention real quick, uh, Dave Allspark jumped on and said, um, hey, I made it. Hey, Annie, miss you, my friend. Sorry, I'm late. I just wanted to uh, make sure that, make Hi, sure Dave. that, that Dave got a, a shout out because he, he, he texted me before the show saying he was going to be late and not able to get on. And he was so bummed out that he wasn't going to see you live as opposed to later, uh, Annie. So uh, somehow we made it anyway and got here to be able to see the end of it. But best to you, Dave. Dave's, Dave was uh, the uh, veteran buddy of ours who uh, created the flag, wrote it uh, based on his life and, uh, and his ideas. And I was honored to direct it for him. And so uh, that connected Dave and me and Annie. And so, yeah, he's a fantastic guy and uh, uh, somebody who's going to be on the show too uh, as well. Uh, so don't don't think I forgot about you, Dave. You're coming on. Um, and then there's also an Army a veteran student of mine, but I'm not going to read it because he got a long thing. But please read his stuff uh, on the thing. Ken Ibaka, who I, I taught and um, was teaching a film school, uh, John Paul, the great Catholic University um, uh, production management. And he was one of my students and he's an Army veteran and working in the film industry. Also uh, a great young young man. So he posted a lot of stuff about 9-11, how it impacted him. So please read his comments. Um, but Annie, anything else you want to, um, and welcome Mike and anybody else uh, who, who came on, make sure you you contact me, uh, connect me with your friend so I can get him into uh, interviewing as well. Um, well I look forward, you know, if I get down to uh, where you are, I'll make sure I'll visit because um, I got to get down there and see that, that, that world down there. Um, so I'll definitely do that. Anything you want to wrap up with, and, I'm, and thank you so much for being part of this, sharing your oh, story, it's my honor. sharing your I faith. Heading into the holidays, which we are, you know, coming into Thanksgiving and Christmas and Hanukkah, you know, if you're out there and you are feeling nervous or you do have any kind of um, fears about interacting or being with people or family or whatever, you know what? Love is the best medicine and it heals and it helps and it brings hope. So don't. Don't shy away from the family gatherings. Don't shy away from, you know, being with people and engaging and going out and doing the things that everybody loves to do during the special time of year, because it, it's very important for all of us to do. And no matter what side of the political fence you're on, if you're coming to a holiday event, just throw politics out the window. Nobody needs to know or talk about it. Let's just embrace being humans and being lovable people and being humble servants. And everybody just inspire each other and look out for people. I mean, right now people are so, we're, we're losing them way too many with the suicide epidemic, both in the military veteran community and just in our country in, in general due to the isolation. So keep, keep tuned to really watch people and call and make calls. And if you see someone struggling, you know, dig deep, find ways to get them help, whether it be a church or a local, you know, local resources, but connect with people and really pay attention, listen to people. And for those people that you think might be struggling, don't, don't shy away from that. Don't be fearful of that engagement, engage, 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 engage. We've got to start saving more individuals. This is getting like so out of control and nobody's taking a forward, a forward movement to really stop it. 
Well, I'd like to just uh, echo that. I think that's powerful. And, you know, um, it's like, you know, people need to get back to that place of don't just talk about love, uh, practice it. Practice it with your family, practice it with your friends. You don't have to agree with each other. You never will ever agree with each other on everything. And who cares? You know, if, if somebody's a good person, treat them with love, treat them with respect and, and create those connections. And, and let's get back to what the real important values are. And that's part of it. So with that we're there for each other, we got each other's back and, and we can encourage each other and lift each other up. That's really what we should be doing. And um, you, you've done that through your life and you continue to do that, Annie. So thank you. I'm honored to know you. And I'm um, I, I'm glad that uh, you're part of what in this world is trying to make it better. So I, I thank you so much for, your, for what you do. Thank you. It's my honor. All right. You have a great one. And uh, until I see you soon in real life, you take care of yourself. Bye. All right. Thank you. Bye. Oops. All right. Well, you just uh, that was a, a fascinating uh, talk with somebody who is a, a, a faith filled person, a love filled person and a courageous person. Annie Nelson, American Soldiers Network, uh, author of a Resilience. Please check out a book. These are the kind of folks that I, I, you know, that need we need in our lives to inspire us, encourage us to be the best we can be, and to be uh, people of service, people who are willing to do more for others and, and not just focus on ourselves. And she's lived a, an amazing life and continues to uh, inspire. So I'm honored to uh, do what I do to be able to bring people like this on, and that I know so many of amazing people uh, in my life who inspire me. So I'm blessed by that. So until I see you next week on um, Live Courageously, Live Courageously, Live with Resilience, and um, God bless.